Well, good to see you folks this uh, Lord's Day morning, and uh, let me encourage you to turn. If you don't have notes in front of you, no cause for alarm, but there are none. So um, turn, if you would, to John chapter 4 and verse 24. John chapter 4 and verse 24. John 4 and verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And let us pray. Father, we come before thee this Lord's Day morning, and we thank you for your goodness to us. We, we thank you for the privilege of the fellowship of the saints and the, the joy that we have in a living, eternal relationship with your Son. And we, we thank you for the privilege that you give us to um, draw together, to come together, and, and to worship you and to encourage one another in, in the most holy faith that was delivered to the saints. I thank you for each one that is here this morning, and I, I pray that uh, the efforts to be here would be profitable and helpful to their own souls, and I pray that you would help me to uh, convey your word in a way that's pleasing to thee. I, I would pray for the help of your Holy Spirit uh, during this time together to bring honor and glory to thee, and I, I just pray our consideration this morning would be uh, for, your, for your glory and your honor and for our own edification and our own uh, increased delight in the glory of your, your sovereign and pure and holy being. So we commit our time to thee, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're moving through the, the second chapter of London Baptist Confession of Faith um, of God and the Holy Trinity. And we have especially seen in the first paragraph a number of perfections uh, of God. That God is one, which refers to the unity of God. Uh, God is living. God is true. And then last Lord's Day, we especially uh, emphasized the, the infinite character of the being of God. And then we noted especially, it's important because it qualifies and forms our understanding of the other perfections and the other attributes of God. And in the, in the catechism, the question is asked, what is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Um, so the, the, the term infinite helps us to understand the nature of these other perfections of God, his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and truth. Um, so it makes sense, therefore, when we read the, the, the first paragraph of the chapter, we see the repetition of the term most, a most pure spirit, most absolute, most righteous, most loving. All these are a function of God being infinite in his various perfections. As we move our way uh, through the paragraph, we come to this little phrase that he is a most pure spirit, a most pure spirit. And uh, the proof text is what we just read, John chapter 4, verse 24. And the confession is, is really stressing further, obviously, that, that God is a spirit. He's composed of no material elements. And it seems to me in this connection, at least by inference, it helps us to understand our thinking about the nature of the Christian life. The fact is that God is a most pure spirit, helps us to understand the nature and the character of the Christian life. And what I mean by that, it is presented in the New Testament and right throughout the Bible as an intensely spiritual existence. 
So this is a bit of a digression. You can put it under the category of short digression, and then we'll kind of be back in, in, in action next week. But um, it's a little bit of a digression, and I hope it's helpful to your thinking process. So the, the theme I want to kind of hold before your thinking is the intensely, and I, I think easily forgotten, spiritual nature of the, the Christian life. And I, I think I have a tendency... Uh, to believe whatever I kind of wrestle with or struggle with. Well, everybody else is struggling with the same thing as well, which may or may not be the case. But I do find this is one of the most challenging areas in the Christian life to remind ourselves that it's spiritual because we're surrounded with things that are physical and material. We get up in the morning and we see physical people and walls and asphalt and cars and trees, and, and, and it's a material existence that we have. However, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12, our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but that's what we see. So we tend to think in those terms. So I want to bring before your mind this morning, I have five observations, five observations about, it's, it's kind of an extended meditation on the spirituality of the Christian life, sort of taking off on the fact that God is a most pure spirit. So five observations relating to the spirituality of the Christian life. The first one, and you would expect this to be the first one, and that is that true soul-saving Christianity has begun by the direct activity of the Holy Spirit. A person becomes a Christian by the immediate direct activity of the Holy Spirit. And you're in, in John chapter 4. Turn back, if you would, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is in the context of our Lord's conversation with Nicodemus. And notice verses 4 and 5. John chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Um, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So we have here an authoritative statement. This is Jesus himself on the new birth. Um, and it's presented in absolute language. It allows for no exceptions. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So this must happen. A person must be born of the Spirit to enter the kingdom, to become a Christian. And um, I'm just going to read to you um, a couple of verses from Ezekiel chapter 36. And this gives a little bit of an evidence of, well, what happens when the Spirit enters a person? How are they changed? And this gives us some sense of that. We'll talk a bit more about that. But Ezekiel 36, 25 says, Then I, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then verse 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So it indicates that um, the, the effect, or we might say the evidence of being born again, is you, you will walk in my statutes and you will observe, you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. And so the, the language suggests here that, that the Spirit will impel or incline a believer to walk in the law of God. And that fits in 
with Romans chapter 7, verse 14, where the apostle says the law is spiritual. So we're indwelt by the Spirit, we're impelled by the Spirit to keep the law and the character of the law, according to what Paul says, it is spiritual. So there's a congeniality between the impress of the Spirit and the nature of God's law. I, I think that's why we, we have passages where David, he talks about loving God's law. And it's right that a Christian is going to love God's law because there's a spirituality to it and a Christian is indwelt and affected by the Holy Spirit. So legitimate soul-saving Christianity, it starts or begins when one is born again by the immediate agency in the soul of the Holy Spirit. Um, just a little further reflection on this one. Uh, the book of 1 John brings out some more obvious implications in terms of evidence, implications of being born again. If God the Holy Spirit regenerates a soul that has been dead in trespasses and, and sins, the, the change will be evident. So here's just four or five verses from 1 John that, that gives us some sense of the evidence of being indwelt by the Spirit and having been changed by the Spirit. 1 John 2.29 says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. The one who is born of him, and evidence of that is practicing righteousness. First John 3, 9, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Uh, as you read through the book of First John, I, I, one of the challenges you get to verses like that, that says, well, he cannot sin. And back in chapter 1, it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Then we come to a verse that says, well, you cannot sin. So what, what's going on here? Well, uh, I, at least one helpful thought is that the cannot sin in First John 3, 9, it's in the present tense, which talks about an ongoing practice. So the, the difference is a, a Christian believer... The, Sin does not reign in their life, and the, the, the rule and the reign of sin is, is broken, and they don't practice the sin. They don't live in the sin. It doesn't mean that they don't, they're, they're not events or times of sin, um, but the, the character of a Christian is that they're bothered by their sin, and as one has put it, keep short accounts with God, and there's repentance and a turning back to communion with Christ. First John 4, 7, let us love one another. Love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. First uh, John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. So the doctrinal evidence of being born again would be a persuasion that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's an evidence of the Spirit having done a work in the soul. And then 1 John 5, 4, these are just evidences of, of being born again. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So the, the believer is engaged in, in warfare against the world. And then First John 5, 18, we know that no one, this is repetitious, we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So uh, that's observation number one. Number two, uh, what truly distinguishes the truly saved person from the generality of mankind, this is just taking one step and moving to the next, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That, that's what's different about a Christian from a non-Christian. They are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Once a, a soul is regenerated that has been dead in, in trespasses and sins, he or she is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit takes up residence within them. And a text that is helpful would be 1 Corinthians 3.16. 
Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? This is how a believer in Christ, a saved person, is to think of him or herself. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Same kind of language is found in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. And, and the broader context there gives us some helpful implications um, about abiding in the Spirit. Um, it's a motive for moral purity because 1 Corinthians six eighteen says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And this is in the context of knowing that we are a temple of God, the Holy Spirit. And it corresponds with a realization that one is no longer your own, but we are purchased by the blood of Christ. So th- these are realities that, that, are, that cannot be separated and dwelt by the Holy Spirit fleeing youthful lust, having a pursuit of holiness, a realization that we're purchased and bought by the blood of Christ, um, all, all go together in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, when, I, when I say that uh, this is what distinguishes a truly saved person from the generality of mankind, a helpful text would be, turn if you would to Jude, book of Jude, um, it's a one chapter book, and then verse 19. Jude uh, chapter 1. And then verse 19, it should be right before the book of Revelation. Jude chapter 1 and verse 19. Um, And New American Standard translation is, These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Devoid of the Spirit. Notice the declaration, devoid of the Spirit. What defines... A saved person is being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and this has clear, positive, moral implications. What defines an unsaved person is they are devoid of the Spirit. They don't don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the influence of the most pure Spirit. And that has negative moral implications. They cause divisions. They are worldly-minded. So you see the direct connection here, kind of a positive and a negative uh, example. So this is the great uh, distinctive uh, of a, you could call this biblical anthropology, I suppose, between the saved and the lost. One is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, one is not. And their whole outlook, their whole perspective is, is affected by this. Okay, then observation number three. Number three, and turn here if you would, a very familiar passage to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And then verse 18. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Uh, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So third observation is the ongoing activity of the Holy Spirit is needed to live out the most basic dictates of the Christian life. The ongoing activity of the Spirit is needed to live out what I'm arguing for is the most basic dictates of the Christian life. And here we are, we're told to be filled with the Spirit. And the word filled here, it's in the present tense. It's an imperative, which means it's not a suggestion. Um, It's present tense, which means it's a command that that daily must be complied with. Daily, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And and the context, I think, in Ephesians here, it's very instructive because it's not just a verse that's floating around out there somewhere. But Paul, in this context, goes on to speak about the most basic of human relationships. He talks about various family relationships and what children should do and what fathers should do. 
and, and various members of the family um, in their God-ordained roles, and then even slaves and, and masters, and I suppose at least one application of that in our culture would be in the workplace. Um, in other words, the teaching of, of the Bible is that we need the daily ongoing activity of the Holy Spirit and sort of the daily grind of life, the most basic things of life, our home, the workplace, the neighborhood. We need the help of the Holy Spirit to live out the most basic issues of the, the Christian life. Um, and if you just turn back, you're familiar with these passages, but Galatians 5 reveals more, especially what this will look like um, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, which indicates the, uh, the effects of the Spirit and, and the great need that we all have for the Spirit on a daily basis. Um, it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. This, this is in contrast to the, the deeds of the flesh which are in verse 19 and following immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. F.F. Bruce in his work says Paul lists nine graces, not an exhaustive list, which make up the fruit of the Spirit, the lifestyle of those who are energized by the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, we could put this another way and say that spiritual power is needed to live the Christian life. And this is because uh, the New Testament is filled with uh, imperatives, that is, dictates there's one after another. And, and, and it could seem a bit overwhelming because there's really one, there's, the New Testament is filled with imperatives. How do we do that? How do we put those into practice? And the answer is we need to be energized and directed and helped by the Holy Spirit. And, and the Bible connects the Spirit and power. Let me just give you some uh, illustrations of this. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And just texts that indicate the scriptures connect the, the Spirit and power. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And another good example would be Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16, we see this connection. Um, and this is in the context of prayer, uh, the Apostle Paul's prayer that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power by his spirit in the inner man. So these are at least a couple of texts that connect this idea of, of the spirit and power and to be energized by the spirit. Peter O'Brien writes, the agency of the spirit in dispensing divine power is in line with the other New Testament teaching where the spirit and power are, are intimately linked. And um, let me see, you know, there's examples, a couple of examples from the Old Testament that might be helpful too. If you want to, uh, you can just listen to me read a couple of texts or turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 10. And again, we see this connection between the Spirit's work and, and power. This, is, this has to do with King Saul. First, for 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 6, uh, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And then the same chapter, verse 10 says, When they came up to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he might so that he prophesied among them. It came about then all who knew him previously saw that he prophesied with the, now with the prophets. 
that the people said to one another, what has happened to the son of Kish is Saul also among the prophets. And just kind of one other example from the Old Testament, if you back up a few pages to Judges chapter 14. Judges chapter 14, just noticing some examples of this connection between the, the, the spirit and power. This has to do with um, Samson, Judges chapter 14, and verses 5 and 6. Kind of interesting example from his life. It just says, uh, Then Samson went home to Timnah with his father and mother, and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Now, this is not the, uh, the, operative, the normative act, uh, activity of the Holy Spirit, so don't try this kind of a thing. But in this case, the, the strength was not, I, I suppose we might think of Samson as some big muscular guy, but he may not have been. I mean, the issue here is he was, he was, the Holy Spirit came upon him. That's where the power, that's where the strength came from. So, um, all right. Um, so, number four, observation number four. Um, the activity of the Holy Spirit is a chief means of mortifying the deeds of the flesh. The activity of the Holy Spirit is a chief or central means of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. The activity of the Holy Spirit, a principal means. Um, John Owen, in his great work on mortification of sin, turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. Um, and he kind of uses this as a basis for his whole work on the mortification of sin. But Romans uh, 8.13, uh, and I'm going to, well, you're probably in, in the New American Standard Version of the Bible. The King James reads, for if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. If you do put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. And, and Owen writes, referring to the Holy Spirit, he only is sufficient for this work. All ways and means without him are as a thing of naught. And he is the great efficient of it. He works in us as he pleases. And he's saying any, any other means come to nothing. The Holy Spirit is given for the purpose of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And, and he elaborates how, the, how does the Spirit do this. And he indicates it does it in two ways. Positively, by causing our hearts to abound in grace and the fruits of that which are contrary to the flesh and the fruits and the principles thereof. So it would be the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Negatively, he indicates, by a real physical efficiency on the root and habit of sin for the weakening, destroying, and taking it away. So there, there is an actual efficient putting to death of the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. It's designed for that purpose. It's like putting the axe at the root. You can take a baseball bat and pound at the root. It does nothing. Or a bar, it does nothing. But if you have a sharp axe, it immediately begins to have an effect. And the idea is that the Spirit is effectual. It's designed for this purpose of putting to death the deeds of the flesh. On, on writes, he brings the cross of Christ into the heart of a sinner by faith and gives communion with Christ in his death, fellowship, and his, and his sufferings. Um, with this aspect of the Spirit, and why it's so compelling, he writes, he writes this, that the vigor and comfort of our spiritual life depends much on the mortification of sin. So he's saying, if you and I are not doing this, we're really not having the joy and the peace and the fullness of the Christian life that we would like. He says much of our, our joy and much of our progress is directly related to this idea of the mortification of sin. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in the soul, putting to death the deeds of, our, of the flesh. 
So the, the key to our overcoming um, the power of indwelling sin, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Then um, observation number five, and here turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter six. Back to Ephesians and then Ephesians chapter six. Observation number five about the spirituality of the Christian life. Um, and what I'm emphasizing here is effective prayer or effectual prayer is an activity of the spirit. Uh, the, uh, it's, it's the soul that is dependent on the immediate activity of the Holy Spirit. There are two texts that are very helpful here. And the first one is in Ephesians 6.18. Paul indicates here, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view be on the alert with all perseverance and petition and all the saints notice the language here pray at all times excuse me with all prayer and petition pray at all times in the spirit now, i understand that to mean simply there there is a reliance on the energy and the presence and the activity of the holy spirit in prayer um and i don't think it's insignificant here that paul is writing impresses this on our minds in the in the context of spiritual warfare we're to pray in the spirit he's just got through talking about spiritual warfare and christian uh, excuse me william gurnall on this text says the christian's armor will rust except it be furnished and scoured with the oil of prayer he says the doctrine he derives from the section is that prayer is a necessary duty to be performed by the Christian and used with all the other means of his spiritual warfare. Um, and this makes great sense in light of the nature of the warfare to which we are engaged. We read this earlier, but in chapter 6 and verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Um, Gernal, so this is a spiritual warfare. Gernal says, this is a, the silver, he's referring to prayer, he says, this is the silver trumpet by the sound of which he is to alarm heaven and call God. Uh, the saints' enemies will not fall till God rises and, and God stays to be raised by their prayer. So he's saying prayer kind of wakes up God, so to speak, to respond to, um, to, re to, respond to the people. Just, uh, let me just read to you a text that's, that's helpful in this context. This is from Isaiah chapter 37, and it's in, in the context of prayer and spiritual warfare. This is Isaiah praying, Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 21, there's an interesting statement here about prayer. Um, and this is in the context of the Assyrian of Asian Shennacherib. And it says in verse 21 of Isaiah chapter 37, um, Then Isaiah and the son of Amos sent word to Hezekiah, Hezekiah praying, uh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Shennacherib, king of Assyria. Well, then it goes on to talk about what happened because you have prayed. And it ends up, end up saying this, Because you have prayed... Um, then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Shadakarab, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It's just kind of interesting, the language there, because you prayed. It's in the context of, of, of a kind of warfare in the Old Testament. And then one other text that is helpful here, and we'll just kind of end this with this. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Romans 8, 26 and 27, and two texts of Scripture that indicate very clearly how dependent we are upon the Holy Spirit in our, our prayer life. Romans 8, 26 and 27, and Paul simply writes here, in the same way the Spirit also 
helps our weaknesses or our weakness. We do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So, some thoughts about the, the centrality of, um, of thinking about the spirit or the spirituality of the Christian life. And, and uh, let us turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we do thank you for your pure, holy word. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves to live for your honor and your glory in this, in this fallen and sinful and evil world. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the, the blessedness of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I pray that these considerations would be uh, helpful to our own thinking process and in the living of the Christian life. And I pray that as, as, as a result, we would grow in grace and our, uh, the knowledge of Christ and our love for Christ. And pray that you would uh, use this to prepare our hearts also for worship this day. And we, we pray that our, our fellowship would be... Uh, edifying and sweet and, and encouraging to our own souls and, and that you would meet with us and, and give us an unmistakable sense of the glory of your presence this morning as we would meet together. Thank you for the time together and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.